News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Messias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Well, welcome, Congressman Ronnie Jackson. Thank you for all that you're doing. I know uh, I've told my listeners this, but I just really appreciate the fact that we have some Texas congressmen that are really loud and proud about the conservative values that we hold in the Lone Star State. That is something that Texas didn't have as much 10, 20 years ago. So um, I wanted I, I wanted to start with one quick question. You know, when you were a doctor, what 
got you to go the DC route? Because I know your your history is, you know, having spent a lot of different time in DC, even as a medical professional, what kind of initially took you there? Well, it was just circumstances, I guess. I never really thought about getting into politics, never really considered being a member of Congress. It really never crossed my mind. And uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but, you know, the whole issue with uh, the uh, whenever President Trump nominated me for the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, uh, you know, everything changed at that point. And uh, that was when the knives came out. That was when even though I was still on active duty, I was an active duty uh, Navy Rear Admiral uh, serving at the White House. Uh, just the fact that he had nominated me and I was a Trump nominee, uh, the uh, the left came after me with everything they had. And they made up a bunch of stories, just a bunch of ridiculous stuff. You know, they, they made up stories like I'd gone to a Secret Service Christmas party, got drunk and wrecked a government vehicle, which was obvious, <laughs> just you know, a, a huge lie. I mean, any two-bit investigator could have you know, determined whether that did or didn't happen in about you know 24 hours. But they didn't bother to check because they didn't care if it was true or not. They knew it wasn't true. Uh, it was John Tester on the, uh, the Veterans Affairs uh, Committee in the Senate side. Uh, long story short, they had already picked somebody. When I say they, I don't mean just the Democrats. I mean, mm. some of the Republicans in the committee, the Democrats in the committee, people in the VA, people in DOD, they had already picked somebody that they had a longstanding relationship with, somebody that they thought they could control as a, as a cabinet member, have influence over, so on and so forth. And I wasn't that person. The only problem was, is that person wasn't President Donald J. Trump's nominee. I was. Uh, so they had started a campaign behind the scenes and the only people that weren't really read into what was going on were myself and President Trump. And so the behind the scenes, they were working this whole thing to try to get rid of me. They'd come up with all these, uh, you know, stories. I mean, it turns out, you know, like I said, crazy stories like the one I described. And, you know, I'd never even been to a Secret Service Christmas party my entire life. I had never, ever in my entire life had an accident involving alcohol. And the crazy thing is if you looked into the Washington Post, maybe, you know, a year earlier, this exact story had actually happened to a Secret Service agent almost identical to the story they put about me. It was like they had taken this guy's name, cut it out, pasted my name in and ran with it, right? But you ask how this happened. So there was a lot of this stuff going on. I had never seen anything like this happen before. Most people in the White House had never seen anybody attacked the way that they were attacking me because, you know, they had the, you know, Trump, the Trump derangement syndrome you know, is a real thing. You know, and these people were losing their minds, uh, you know, uh, because I you know, had the Trump stamp on me now and I was a Trump nominee. And, you know, they were, they were like, oh my God, this guy's going to be dangerous. He's going to answer to nobody but the president, right? Which would have been my job, quite frankly, as a cabinet secretary. But they wanted somebody that, that answered to them before, uh, you know, they answered to the president. And that's just kind of how, you know, how they, you know, they, they engineered everything going forward. You know, I'm talking about, you know, the deep state and the deep state, you know, is real. I've lived it. But long story short, uh, you know, they had, they, they, they decided they were going to bring me down. And so, uh, uh, I, like I said, I'd never seen anything like this happen before ever, to be honest with you. And most people at the White House hadn't seen it before. I tell people that I got Kavanaugh before Kavanaugh did. I was just the warm up. I was the pregame. I just didn't really know it at the time. Right. So that changed everything for me. After I went through that process, I, uh, I, I didn't know I was going to end up in Congress. I didn't know where that was going to lead me. All I knew is I had a really bad taste in my mouth. I was disgusted with D.C. I mean, I never really fit in in D.C. Obviously, I was born and raised in West Texas. And folks up here in D.C. are a lot different than folks in West Texas. But, you know, I had survived up here. I'd, I've been on active duty. I was at the White House during the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration. You know, I'd served my country for 25 years in uniform, most of that at the White House. And, you know, so I'd, I'd adapted to it up here. But this was different. At, at this particular point, I despised D.C. I just hated it. Mm -hmm. I, I said, this place is a swamp. It's a sewer. It's disgusting. I can't stand the politics here. I can't stand the people here. I just wanted out as soon as possible. So I was I was, I was looking ahead thinking I'm going to retire from the military. I'm getting out 
out of here. Uh, you know, I, I can't leave fast enough. Get back home to Texas. My wife was looking forward to going back home uh, to Texas as well. So I was in the process of starting to get my retirement paperwork together. And then suddenly I realized that, uh, you know, Mac Thornberry, who had been the congressman from the 13th Congressional District for 26 years, uh, was suddenly not going to run again. And that's when I kind of had an epiphany. Hey, this was back in October of 2019. And mind you, back then, everyone thought that President Trump was getting reelected, right? I mean, you know, if you look at any yeah. of the indicators, whether or not a president's going to get reelected, the economy and everything else, it was through the roof. There was no doubt he was he, he was going to get reelected. The Republicans believed that. The Democrats believed that. Everybody believed that. That was before COVID, uh, you know, before, you know, all the crap that followed COVID, you know, uh, and, and, and whatnot. But so I was looking at the time back in October of 2019. I thought to myself, Trump's going to get reelected. I have an unbelievably a tight relationship with him. He's going to be back in the White House, right? Uh, I, you know, uh, I'm getting ready to retire. I've done 25 uh, years on active duty. I'm a retired, uh, you know, uh, flag officer in the Navy, or I will be a retired flag officer in the Navy. I've already kind of capped out as far as my rank goes. Uh, I'm retirement eligible. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I could go up to the 13th Congressional District. This is when I just kind of had this epiphany. When I saw this, it kind of all came together. And I thought, I can go up there and I can represent those folks up there without changing anything about who I am politically, socially, culturally, economically. I'm on the same page, right? Those are my people up in the Panhandle in North Texas. And uh, so, you know, I just it, I thought about it for, you know, uh, a little bit that day. I mean, this was like six o'clock in the morning when I was getting ready to go to work at the White House. When I saw this on TV, I went to the White House that day. I walked around all day and just thought about it. By the end of the day, I, I thought to myself, you know, it's not an opportunity. It's a duty to get back in the fight and do something about what's going on in our country. Because, you know, mm -hmm. it, things were bad back then. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, sounds cliche, but I was worried about the future of my kids and my grandkids. You know, and things are, you know, a thousandfold worse now than they were back then. Things are much worse now. Uh, you know, the, the, the country just continued to degenerate in my mind. and has continued to go downhill every since. But that's what drove me here, the need to, to do something about what's happening. And uh, and I would have never considered it had I not gone through all that uh, process of being the nominee, being President Trump's nominee for the secretary of the VA. That's what really changed my mind and decided, you know what? I can retire later. I can go out into the civilian sector and make some money later on in life. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to defer that for a few years. I'm going to get back in the fight and I'm going to do something about what's going on in this country. Not talk about it, not about it, but do something about it. And that's what led me here. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I, I uh, want to get on to some of the policies that are going on in D.C., but uh, my thought process, and, and I never really thought about it this way, but in D.C., you get nominated. And again, the swamp on both sides is saying this is not the guy who we want to serve the president in this position. Then you... Yeah. And then you ran for Congress and you know what you found out? Like you also weren't the handpicked replacement by all of the established hierarchies in that community, right? right. You had the lobby that had kind of their own guy yep. and the different regions. And so you again had to make in some ways kind of blaze your own path again at that point. That's absolutely right. When I became the candidate for 13, there was a huge push from within DC to keep me out of the race. Uh, and, you know, luckily, uh, you know, I, I didn't do that. I decided I was going to do it. I mean, Lots of people tried to talk me out of running. You know, uh, Karl Rove uh, was the first to try to mm -hmm. talk me out of running. And then, you know, uh, Mac Thornberry called me himself and tried to talk me out of running. I got multiple phone calls from co uh, political consultants that I'd known uh, during my time at the White House that called me out of nowhere. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. But everybody was trying to convince me there was no way I could possibly win this race, that it was not going to happen. And then I realized, like you said, you know, later on, that uh, it was a concerted effort because I wasn't the I wasn't the ordained person to replace, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Thornberry.
Mm. So there's uh, you have filed some legislation at a federal level to deal with whether or not China can purchase agriculture exempt land nationwide. Right. From a nationwide right. perspective, I know I know you've supported that legislation in Texas. We also have Senator Lois Kolkhorst, who's filed le uh, legislation that basically says in Texas, she doesn't want Chinese companies or individuals to be able to purchase any land, be it plots, lots, ag exempt, you know, just stop buying Texas dirt as as a whole. Can you talk to us about why you think this policy is something we need to be serious about? You're at a national level, seeing the national threat. Tell us a little bit more about what you're pushing. Well, look, I brought this up actually two years ago. As soon as I got into Congress, this is one of the first things that we came up with. We started talking about this. And I, I'd asked to be on the Ag Committee when I first came into Congress and didn't work out. I wasn't able to get on Ag. There weren't enough seats, uh, you know, and we didn't have the majority. So we couldn't control the, the ratios of how many Republicans and Democrats were on the committees. There weren't any seats that opened up that I could get into. Uh, so I was on, but I did end up on, uh, on Armed Services and Foreign Affairs. And I continued my push to be on Ag, which I'm on Ag now. I got on Ag this, uh, this, this Congress. So now I'm on Armed Services foreign affairs, ag, and the COVID, the select committee for COVID. But uh, to answer your question, when, when, when I started thinking about ag, you know, I don't come from an, I don't come my, uh, from an ag background as far as my family goes. I mean, I grew up in, in Leveland, west of uh, Lubbock, which is mm -hmm. cotton country. So I grew up in an ag, in a, in a rural ag area. But, you know, my dad's an electrician. My mom's a homemaker. My, my, my parents weren't farmers or ranchers. So I was thinking, how do I, what's my unique way to approach ag when I get on the committee? And what I thought is, I got 25 years of experience in the armed services and the military. I am going to approach ag like it's a national security issue because it is. And I think people every single day are realizing more and more that ag is a national security issue in this country. If we can't secure our food source uh, and we can't, you know, basically control our supply chain from the ag side, then we're at the mercy of whoever does that. And when I started looking around, I realized that there's a, an amazing number of uh, millions and millions of acres of land all over this country that are being bought up by, uh, by, a foreign, uh, by foreign countries. A lot of them, mainly China, mm -hmm. are adversaries, right? And so, uh, you know, you look at what's going on in the Dakotas right now. They're buying land that's in close proximity to key military bases where we uh, test our drone, our drones and things of that nature. But just the fact that they're buying up all of this ag land that they can do whatever they want with or they can control the supply chain. I thought, you know, we need this is something we need to stop. So I put together the FARM Act and FARM stands for Foreign Adversaries Risk Management. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what, you know, the acronym said. That's that's where FARM came from. But it's called the FARM Act. What the FARM Act does is the FARM Act says that uh, the purchase of agricultural land by any foreign country will be treated as a national security issue mm. and it will have to go through a CFIUS review. CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. and it controls a lot of investment when it comes to uh, industry and the tech, tech industry in particular, but pharmaceuticals and a lot of different stuff, but it never included anything related to ag. So we're now rolling ag into that CFIUS review. Mm. We're, uh, we're saying that the Secretary of Agriculture should be a member of the CFIUS board and anything that comes uh, from a foreign country in the way of purchase of, of agricultural land in this country has to be submitted to that review and they, they have the right to stop that uh, transaction from taking place. And this will stop almost all of the Chinese purchase of land in this country. No, I, I really uh, like that one also because you're saying it's not just China, any foreign country. That's right. Our relationships with other countries are changing all the time. Absolutely. So it's like, look, you could have a country that one year you're getting along with, the next year you see as adversarial. And if they're going to come in and purchase land, you know, when you go to China, 
I mean, you, I, nobody we know, no matter how much money they have, no matter what company they are, they are not allowed to own one ounce of dirt in that country. Right. Right? Yeah. They, they actually, don't, they treat us that way. And then we turn around and go, you can buy the apartment complex down the building. You, you can buy that land next to that military base. You can buy that ag exempt you know, uh, farm. And so I really appreciate the work that you're doing and other people are doing at the national, the state level. It's also exciting. You know, most of our listeners are state-based conservative activists across the state. And, and they're seeing the work that Senator Colcourse is doing on the state level. They're seeing the work that you're doing at a federal level. I mean, the Democrats in the Texas House literally had this massive press conference down here and had all these people saying, man, these racists in Texas are trying to stop us from purchasing their land. And so I appreciate the work yeah. you're doing in closing, because I know, look, I know we've got the State of the Union tonight, and you've been so gracious to come on even for a short period of time. Uh, they're Y'all have y'all have clearly set a really good tone in the U.S. House of Representatives with these rules changes that were implemented. I, I see more excitement of conservatives behind what the House of Representatives are doing than really I've seen in a long time. And one of the things I see on the other side is, is you're starting to hear these rumblings about maybe some moderates teaming up with Democrats in the Senate to try to broker a couple of deals. And a lot of people, I think, are generally concerned about these things because those have led to gun control. They could lead to amnesty. They could, and, and Democrats are pretty set on making sure they get wins out of uh, the legislature, even when Republicans sometimes control one chamber. What is your big picture perspective on how Congress should treat the next two years? What kind of policy should be allowed to get to the president's desk? How do we actually negotiate with Democrats to ensure that Republicans are actually getting policy wins? Well, look, those are all concerns that, you know, that we should have. And I'll tell you, no matter what, we're better off than we were just a few months ago when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House, right? So at least yep. we have some leverage right now. I can't tell you that there aren't going to be some, uh, you know, uh, more liberal uh, rhino Republicans that are going to break away at some point uh, on, the, on, on the left side of our conference and support some of this stuff because I've been disappointed already since I've been in the last two years. I've seen that happen a couple times. Uh, but, it, you know, the reality is, is they had the votes to do it on their own before. They don't have the votes to do it on their own anymore. You know, we we basically, they can't do anything without support from uh, some of the Republicans on, on a, you know, in, in the House now. So I hope we stand fast. I think Kevin McCarthy's been, been doing a pretty good job of uh, mm -hmm. keeping everybody in line right now. He's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's made a lot of promises uh, to the conservatives in our party, uh, you know, promises that quite honestly, he's going to have to keep because, uh, you know, part of the negotiation and him becoming speaker was uh, some checks and balances and what's going Going on, including mm -hmm. the fact that any member can call to uh, for a vote to vacate the chair, and you know we'll be right back in the situation that we were in whenever we, uh, you know, mm -hmm. had the uh, kind of the the four or five day debacle on TV where we were trying to you know elect a speaker. So I think that you know Kevin's uh, genuine in 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 what he's saying. I think he's gonna he's gonna stand his ground. He's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. Uh, will a few of them break away? I hope not. One of the ways that we're gonna control the Democrats is is you know, and, and I will just say to, to voters out there, and it's not it, you know it's not necessarily necessarily uh, a lot of voters in the state of Texas, but voters out there in general that, you know, if, if we have members on the Republican side of the House that break away and vote with the Democrats and continue to push their horrible agenda that they've been pushing for the last couple of years, then, you know, the, the simple answer is that next round, those people can't be here again, right? You know, a lot mm. of folks left, there was a lot of turnover this time. And that's how we went from, you know, being in the minority to being in the majority. And, mm. and, 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 you know, if there's another round of that and it gives us a bigger majority, then there's less likely that happens next time. So my point is that the fight's not over. We've got to continue to keep fighting uh, from this point forward. We've got to continue to keep getting good, uh, uh, you know, solid conservatives elected to these uh, to, to these uh 
these these seats that we have here in the house. But one of the ways we're going to control them is we're going to control them with the purse strings to some extent. We are going to uh, you know use the appropriations process uh, to shut down the money and decide where the money does and doesn't go. Uh, so yeah, we, we have some tools at our disposal. Uh, you know, we, we have the debt, you know, uh, the debt ceiling coming up, you know, and a lot of people are yes. saying you can't mess around with the debt ceiling. I mean, you can't say that you're not going to raise the debt ceiling. I'm here to tell you right now, I will vote not to raise the debt ceiling if we don't get some concessions in the process. We better get some real concessions in the process that get this country back on the right track, that control spending and that head us toward about towards a balanced budget in the next 10 years. Or I'm not going to be on board with it. So I think mm. that, you know, uh, it would be foolish for us not to use every tool in our toolbox including the debt limit. I know that uh, Russ Vote with the Center for Renewing America has really, I think, done a very helpful job, and we've had him on before, about going through a list of all of the woke and weaponized areas of government. And it's kind of a crazy idea. I think the average American, when they take a step back, if you're you know, a red-blooded conservative, you go, wait a second, we control one of the sides of the Congress. Shouldn't we be able to say that these new bureaucracies that are woke and weaponized against conservatives don't get funded unless you totally control all areas of Congress. And so I really am looking forward to those negotiations. And I think to your point about Kevin McCarthy, I think this is really worth focusing on. His popularity amongst Republicans has significantly gone yeah. up over the last very short window. And I, agree, I think Luke, that and that's... If people want to look where the problem's at right now, I encourage people to do this. Look at the Senate, okay? We have got to get the Senate back and we have got to get some good, strong Republicans with the backbone in the Senate right now because one of the biggest tools we had in our toolbox was to be able to control, like say, for example, you know, the... the, uh, the, the you know, the, the millions or the, the billions of dollars that they put into these new uh, IRS agents that, you know, the 75,000 yeah. new IRS agents that that they funded, yeah. things of this nature. We could cut that funding off day one, except for the fact that 17 Republican senators voted to pass the omnibus at the end of the year and yeah. took one of the biggest tools we had in our toolbox away from us, because that essentially mm. funded the government all the way up until October of this year to the remainder of this fiscal mm. year. And it put us 10 months behind the power curve uh, in our ability to choke off the money for programs and for uh, for uh, you know uh, agencies that are that are basically pushing this woke agenda and this weaponization of their you know using their their uh, their agencies weaponizing their agencies against their political foes that 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 really did a lot of damage to us so I tell people you know look Kevin McCarthy's not the problem right now Kevin McCarthy's saying and doing the right things the problem mm -hmm. right now is the United States Senate. And I think that that actually the McCarthy versus McConnell is an anomaly in the idea that for a long time, conservatives were mad at McCarthy and McConnell, McCarthy and McConnell. And all of a sudden you realize each of these men made two specific decisions. McConnell decided, hey, I don't care what the American people did with Congress. The fact that they gave us back the majority, I'm going to give Democrats what they want in this last funding deal. And his moderate loyalists got on his team and helped him do that. And then on the McCarthy side, he says, you know what? I actually realize in order to take the gavel, I'm going to have to make concessions and actually empower conservatives further on my right. chamber. Those yeah. are the opposite directions that they've taken. And we hope that that trend, when I say continues, we hope that McCarthy stays on his path. And McConnell, honestly, he either course corrects as he sees the fact that McCarthy's fighting is actually getting him more and more support amongst actual Republicans, or if he doesn't, that we see a permanent change in an institution and a leadership structure that has had some real fundamental problems. Congressman, I'm so grateful that you're on the front lines, that you're there, that um, the people in D.C. weren't able to stop you from getting confirmed that the honestly, the establishment uh, that had their other picked can handpicked candidates for Congress weren't able to do that. I know that in a very short period of time, all of a sudden, you're somebody who people are 
are talking about in Houston and Dallas and San Antonio. And so we're grateful for you coming on our show and just giving us an update on some of these fronts. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Anything else you want to close us out with? No, Luke, I appreciate it. appreciate the work that you guys are doing as well. Thanks for getting the word out. Thanks for being a conservative voice. And uh, we'll get together again when we have more time and we'll go into a lot of other issues. i uh, got a lot of other stuff I'd like to talk to you about. Thanks, Ronnie. God bless you, sir. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messias Show. To find out more information about what's going on here in Texas, visit texasscorecard.com.